All right. Well, welcome to another edition of Big Ideas in App Architecture. Today, I'm really excited to have Mike Murphy, Corporate Vice President with New York Life, joining the show. Mike, welcome. Um, you know, you and I talked a little bit on our warm up or pre show about the insurance industry, all the interesting um, challenges that it presents. So, I want to get into that today uh, and talk uh, to the listeners a little bit about all the all the things. Uh, related to technology and insurance. But before we get into that topic, I wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about who you are, how you got to be at New York Life, your background. Let's start there. Tim, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. For me personally, I started coding at 13 and uh, that kind of fell in love with technology and wanted to be in software. To me, being a software was uh, was the place to be and that's where I, I landed. Uh, I worked at a very small companies. Um, but at 1997, I did join a company called Beacon. And in life insurance, there is something called policy administration, meaning you have a life insurance policy that has to be you know, maintained. Um, so Beacon was uh, a life insurance software uh, maker. Uh, at that time, it was Big Iron mainframes. So they were the disruptor doing uh, non-mainframe implementation, basically, you know, Intel Windows slash AIX. And so... Um, at Beacon, eventually did become a company called Navisys, which eventually got bought by Accenture, uh, called Accenture Life Insurance Platform in 2006. And uh, from there, uh, eventually I did join a startup um, in 2013 called Fast. They're also a life insurance platform provider, which led me over to uh, New York Life uh, uh, in 2019, uh, joining uh, over here. And uh, part of, I think, the reason why New York Life hired me is they're looking to upgrade their ecosystem. Now, when you were when you were starting to learn writing software at, at thirteen, what 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 system, what tools were you using back then? I mean, I because I remember when my parents gave me my first. I think it was Commodore sixty four. You know, you're writing like you know a handful lines of what at the time would have been basic or something. I don't remember what it was, but that was that opened up my whole world. You know, and then we got like an Apple and then there was stuff at school. And I don't I don't remember all the details, but I remember being absolutely blown away by some of that early stuff. So I, you don't meet many people who are like, hey, I, you know, I started I started 13. Yeah, it was uh, it was exciting because I think it was hard. I mean, everything technology is so polished. I just talked to my phone or whatever. So back then everything was, you know, ground up. You had to do something with it. So mine was Atari. Atari 800. So you were the enemy, the Commodore 64 people, the other side yeah. of the fence. And uh, I think part of what helped my journey is that back then there was like these um, computer shows. Uh, you would go like in Trenton um, in New Jersey uh, and they would have these big fairs where they would talk about new technology and stuff. And I also used to go to Bell Labs or Murray Hill, uh, even though I was, you know, <laughs> in my teenage years, my father was right up there for an Atari user group. And so I did see, you know, things evolving. And uh, I felt kind of connected to the, the, not the using what I have, but where things are moving towards. Those are fascinating times. I mean, you know, things were changing so rapidly, you know, new systems, new things being introduced all the time. Um, I, I wish I could remember all the, the stuff I had my hands on at the time. But yeah, I think that's when I've really, I really realized this is something I, I kind of wanted to be doing for, for the rest of my days. But let's, let's shift gear. So when you and I talked... Um, you know, and as you just described, you've been in the insurance industry for a long time. Now, most people obviously are vaguely familiar with the insurance industry. Everybody probably has insurance of some form. But from a technology perspective, 
um, you know, there's lots of challenges in building the systems that support what I think maybe many people might think is a relatively simple thing. Hey, I sign up for something. It's there for me when I need it. Uh, but you've been working in this industry for a long time. And I was it was really fascinating, uh, you know, for you to describe earlier kind of some of the big challenges. So I thought maybe we'd start there. And I don't know exactly how we jump into the pool, but, you know, would love to kind of get your perspective. You've been in the industry for a very long time. I mean, what what's different about about software technology that supports insurance from maybe other things or however you want to get started? But I, your perspective, I thought, was was really fascinating. Sure. Um, so as far as for architecture, right, we're going to describe the challenges. So when I'm talking about the um, challenges, really, if you're listening to the architecture podcast, you're probably thinking, well, how would I solve that problem? And so um, really good architecture to me is a combination of operational challenges, technology options, and costs. So information time, license cost, and then legacy fears, right? Like, am I doing something that's going to uh, fall off to the other end? But in the life insurance industry, um, you have, um, I'm not life, I'm not really a life insurance expert, so I'm, I'll, I'll go quickly over the life insurance portion, <laughs> but, but we have different products. Some like a term life, which is basically you buy, say a policy for 20 years. And if, if you unfortunately pass away, then you're, then there's a payout, but then at the end of 20 years, the policy is expiring, right? Uh, you can do extended and stuff, but generally expires. Then there's something called whole life, which is more of a quasi investment product where it does cover your policy for the life, but you also have a bit of a cash value. So there's money that has to be tracked about, you know, how that cash flow builds up. Uh, you can take loans against it and things like that. Then there's variable universal life, which is uh, they have actually mutual funds that are underneath the policy. So you could have one mutual fund or 10. So there's complexity there about like, what's the underpinnings of that policy? And do you rebalance funds, move things across? Then you have some called annuities, which isn't a life insurance policy, but generally speaking, most life insurance carriers sell annuities. The general point was, is that, you know, a carrier wants to have a single platform, not 20 platforms to handle all those different things. Um, and so each one uh, has its own different needs and, and data needs, as well as processing needs. But it, it gets a little more complicated than that even. So each policy is actually a contract. And what I mean by that is it's a legal contract. So if you sign something in 1980, right, even though the world's moved on, the terms and conditions of how that product advances, you know, whether the building cash value or, or, or other aspects, that's a contract. It can't change. If I want to change my underlying software and say, ah, I want to do it differently, it's easier. I have to come back to you and somehow get you to resign, which you're not going to do, right? So not only do you have these different products, but in each each line, like say a term life, you have different variations of products, like what they're trying to go after. You know, maybe there is some component where it's cheaper if you're healthier with uh, some sort of like new biotech, you know, monitoring device or something along those lines. So who knows what they're coming up with? But not only do you have those different products you sell currently, you have the legacy of all the products you've sold. Uh, and each one has a different computational characteristics. And so... Um, what even more, a little more complicated is maybe we only stole a thousand policies, right? And it was not a great campaign, but now that's on the software that has to be maintained, even though you may never have a product again, that computes quite that like that. And then for the, each policy, they actually have rate tables. I mean, I'm not going into actuarial things, but they have all sorts of things about, you know, predicting where we're going. And then you have different States have different rules. And then. Another aspect is that when you sell a policy, you usually have a life insurance agent. 
So they have commissions, but then they have a commission hierarchy. Maybe there's a company that they work for. They get part of the commission. Maybe two of you work together. Now you have like a three-way split. Um, so uh, just one more level. <laughs> but then for all these different products and all these different variations, all these different states, all these different uniqueness, and you have riders. I think I mentioned before, like a rider is like saying an add-on to these products, like a long-term care rider. So, so that makes more complexities. But then once you have a policy in force, you have to have, say, monthly payments or withdrawals or maybe move money between funds or, or calculate these commissions or generate correspondence. Then you have to have detail records for each fund, what's the actual units. And then you also have to accounting, you know, for all this stuff that moves around. Um, and then lastly, I mean, most people have life insurance policies for 20 years, maybe 75 years. So you have a, you have a history of records that goes back, you know, potentially 75 years. Now, you don't have to legally keep that long. I think it's only seven or eight years is, is the legal. But depending upon the carrier, maybe you want to be able to have that kind of historical record so you can you know, work with your customers. Um, so, so anyway, the, the, the reason why I was trying to bring all this up is I'm just trying to say, you know, life insurance, what's the big deal? You know, just make this <laughs> offer, right? But you can see there's a very complicated ecosystem. Yeah, sounds, sounds super easy. Yeah. No challenges there. So, you know, given, given that challenge and that, you know, that's something that's been around for years. I mean, you know, you know, these challenges don't necessarily predate, you know, computers, but they certainly predate kind of maybe you know, the cloud and, and technologies that kind of we're used to working with in the last 10 to 15 years. But you said you'd been kind of, you've been working in the insurance industry in technology for a while. I mean, are there, have there been systems built to try to standardize this? I mean, are there many players? Are there a handful of players? I mean, what's that ecosystem look like? There is a handful of players and they've evolved over the years. So Back in the day, you know, I would say in the 60s, 70s, is more IBM or a company called CSC, their mainframe, you know, uh, uh, implementations. And New York Life's been around for 175 years, so we have still some mainframe software at our company. Um, but in the current environment, uh, generally speaking, you know, Accenture Life Insurance Platform, which I worked at, Fast, which I worked at, and then another Oracle are the top three kind of general players, but you know, there are other ones who are close to that. There's probably like a dozen providers, but to give you an idea how um, many sales in this software industry is in one year back in 2009, uh, when it was Accenture, we sold one copy that year. Now, now that sounds really bad, but there was only two sold in the United States that year. So <laughs> we got half the, we got half the, um, the sales. So that's pretty good now. <laughs> cleaning up the market. Right. So and the point of reason I bring it up is that, you know, through, you know, economic, you know, changes, um, you know, what you have works, right? What I have works, right? So um, yeah. making a change is really when, you know, you have the extra funds to kind of invest in to lower your costs and, and, and help business get greater speed of the market. Well, and just, I want to touch on that one sale or two sales. I mean, you know, obviously Cockroach Labs is a you know, is in the business of, of selling a database. Um, you know, if, if we went back to our, our, our leadership and said, we're going to make one sale this year, uh, I think they'd lose their mind. I mean, what, why is that? I mean, I, I think I can guess reasons well, why. 2009 but- was a little special. <laughs> it was the after, you know, from the 2008 crash. But but generally speaking, the, the reason why I give that number is it, it's not worth selling thousands in the industry. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, um yeah, no, I mean, uh, I would say that the, the you know, the, these vendors uh, make money in a combination of uh, the license fees, 
host now nowadays SaaS hosting fees and consulting services. Um, you know, so back to all the complexity. So let's talk about the software or the SaaS or whatever the solution is. So if you have all these different products and you have all these different variations, I mean, the old school way back in the you know 70s, 80s is you code it, right? And as you know, from low code, no code and these trends is that, <laughs> you know, well, what happens with code is you have a, say, an actuary who designs a product, who gets a business analyst that goes through 13 steps to the end programmer who writes the line of code and all the way back up again. And it's not very uh, efficient to implement what the person who actually has the knowledge to, to get it to work. And so these platforms, uh, at least from the 90s on, I can't say before, uh, are more, I would say, low-code, no-code platforms. So before there was a low-code, no-code, these platforms make low-code, no-code platforms. So, for example, if you said, well, I have a new policy and I want to give discounts based upon shoe size, which first off, you have to get that past legal, which probably wouldn't pass, but let's just go with that. Love those shoe size policies. Yeah, yeah. Love those. Hey, you have discount if you're a Footsburger, I guess, you know. So um, you would you would want to add that element um, to the life insurance policy process, which means you have to have the application entry screen have it. You have to have the policy viewing the existing policy viewing it. And you, you might have to have some rules um, around, hey, if, if they on a size, we're going to do some sort of discount. So these platforms... Uh, basically create a low-code, no-code environment to say, well, you can add a variable and it would automatically appear on those different screens. And then it would be something that's available in their rules engine to pull in for part of a calculation. And the reason why I mention this is that means that all that complexity, I don't say all, but the majority of the complexity is soft coded. It's not hard coded. Yeah, I can I can see that or I can I can imagine that. I mean, you know, I would the, the users of the systems need to be need the ability to write then and there through an interface, design and create policies, approve policies. It can't go off to some, you know, some person sitting in a dark room, you know, writing the code. I would imagine that makes sense. Yeah. And also the part of the tale, right? Ten years from now you look back, you know, do you want to have to mine the, the, the code to find out what it is or, or look at the configuration to see what, how, what it is? You know? I'm still one of the things you said, I'm still going back to this one sale. I don't know why that struck me as so interesting, <laughs> but but um, n- not just about that. I mean, what what is the implementation time? You know, so like, hey, I may and I, I don't know if this is even something that would realistically happen. But, you know, um, I want to start a new business. I'm going to go buy this software. I mean, you know, how long does something like that take to get to get set up and running? And, and that I, the example I just gave was kind of like Greenfield. But I, the other part I really want to touch on is like the migration or the, you know, the, the history of data. I mean, what, these can't be small endeavors to get these products up and running. Yeah, let, let's just quickly just use a different example, like say property and casualty. You have car insurance. If they decided to do a new software platform, they might say as of January 1st, 2024, when policies renew, we'll use a new platform. And then January 1st, 2025, they could show off the old platform because everything would have renewed annually. Uh, with these life insurance policies, since it could be around for 75 years you, you and you have to keep at least eight years of history, you have to bring that stuff over. So uh, the typical way, and obviously, you know, you can do it 20 different ways, but the typical way is that you you pick a, plat- a, prod- a new platform, you launch a new product on it, you get in confidence that that new product works, and then you start looking at your older uh, um, implementation, saying, "Okay, what pieces may I migrate or convert over?" And the conversion, there's different strategies and things like that. But I mean, I, I've I, you know, this isn't speaking for my current job, um, but from previous 
jobs was on the vendor side to do a full migration i mean you're talking minimum three if not like 10 years and really it really it, it, well it depends upon i mean it does i i guess i i act shocked but i really shouldn't be because i mean these are hugely complex systems, as you've described. Yeah, well, part, of part, of the, part of the challenge is, is like, you know, the big bang. Do you just do a mass conversion and bite the bullet? Or do you say, do say, we'll do all the, all the life and then the whole life. And then maybe we'll do the term, which has member now, you know, funds underneath it. And, and so how do you chunk it up and move it over? So how do you move it over over time? Um, and and then I, I would say that the vast majority might take three to five years and then 30% left. They just run it off because to convert that last, well, I got three policies on this one product, like to reverse engineer and cover, like just, just, just run it off. Yeah. Just forget it. it. That brings up another, again, and look to you and to other listeners who may be more knowledgeable. I apologize if I'm asking really dumb questions, but, um, you know, for these, this, like, I don't want to say legacy, but for these older policies and terms and data, you know, that. I mean, would they have been physical signed documents at one point? Yes. I mean, I guess they could have been, right? So, I mean, is this just some kind of like, hey, we're scanning, we're grabbing the metadata, we're you know converting these to digital documents, and then those are stored somewhere plus metadata? I mean, what's that? Yeah, so so life insurance as a whole, right? There's everything you can think of, right? Where you store images and things like that. For this specific um, policy administration system, that's really more about the actual policies and processing and tracking the data and, and uh, being able to, you know, move money and looking at your treasury to make sure that what you have, you think on your books is actually what's in the bank account and doing all that kind of, uh, um, you know, truing up of, of the data. Uh, but real, I'm going to just push, push it back a little bit to the policy admin portion just for a moment. For the policy administration stuff, so even though, like, say you had, like, 5 million policies, you know, on one of these platforms. So if you look at what's the next level challenge, right, there's there's two. There's there's the users, which is basically, you know, your service people, usually not to the public, um, and the concurrency. So you might have, like, say, end of month where there's people doing a lot of sales, and so there's a lot of online users. Remember, all the, the work they're doing is soft-coded. It's no-code, low-code. So that processing and rules processing and, and, and taking the data in is a challenge. Uh, the other challenge is actually processing the data. So at the, at the end of every quarter, there typically tends to be, um, for legacy reasons, uh, a peak of processing on the 1st or the 15th. Because the older systems, the mainframe days, a lot of places, they only took payments on the 1st and the 15th, right? Now, obviously, spreading across 30 days is way better, but <laughs> you, know, you have to deal with the hand, the, card, the, the cards you were dealt. Uh, so, so if you have two, 5 million policies, you may have like 2.5 million policies that have to process on the 1st of the month or more. And then to make it more complicated is in order to um, make your buy-sells for the stock market, you, especially if it's underlying funds, you have to have that into your banking system typically by midnight. So then that's a hard stop, right? Because otherwise you have a gain loss next day that's not, you know, that you have to eat. And then on the other side, well, when do you stop taking things? Well, I mean, California likes to do business up to five o'clock, right? So now you're talking what, eight o'clock at night, you could start your jobs and then you need some inputs like say fund values and things. So typically you only have nine to midnight to process everything. Right. 
And so if you have these peak needs, and the last thing with that quarter end, the reason I picked that quarter end is the, the federal government has rules. Well, you have to evaluate all your policies, not just the two and a half, the five million, to see what the policy values are, what your reserves are, to make sure you're in compliance. So during that quarter end, you have to process all those transactions, which generates all those detail records and um, you know the accounting records and the correspondence and all that stuff. Remember, each one might have, you know, if it's, if it's got variable funds underneath it, it might have one to a dozen funds underneath it. I've seen one client that had a thousand individual pieces of money attached to one transaction. It was the craziest thing ever. But but the, the, the general point is that when we go back to architecture, to process all that work in a timely fashion and scale up, um, for me, the, the changes from 1997 to now have primarily been driven by just the infrastructure availability, right? So, so you know, obviously SSD was a game changer back in the day, and then cloud's another game changer. Yeah. So, all right. So, I'm this is I'm very curious about, it. and I don't know what you can share, or can't share. So, you 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 know, you, you'll guide me here. But I, I am curious, like, what kinds of systems? When you say you know, doing you know, you got to run this stuff over a course of three to four hours. What what is the technology here? You know, broadly speaking, what what is being used to do this calculation to the to to do all this this processing? I mean, I, I you know I was in the big data space for a long time. Hadoop, obviously, I'm in a relational database company now. But give me an, a sense of what we're talking about here. I'm very curious about this. Well, it depends upon when you bought your system, right? That's another reason to move up, right? So if you if you bought your system in the '60s or '70s, you're on the mainframe, and that's how you do it. Um, I would say for current, you know, if we're buying a new product, it depends upon the vendor. Um, it typically is a cloud database. Um, I don't know if they use Cockroach Labs, but you know, typically a cloud we'll database. We'll change that. Don't worry. <laughs> yes, I, I, definitely. I, I agree. I learned a lot listening to Peter Mattis the other day. So it's uh, good, good stuff. I love that. But they typically use a cloud database and they're trying to get to a horizontal scaling model. So there's a whole bunch of problems around that too. So, um, But they're trying to get to a horizontal scaling model on the database side. And then on the other side, you have, you know, Again, back to good architecture, you want to have quasi-component-based, meaning uh, you don't want to get down to microservices, but you want to get down to, like, say, you have a policy processing core, but then you might have another one that's a commission computational core, right? So you kind of break it up into, you know, modules because, you know, like, for example, for, for New York Life, if we bought a new system, we may not use the commission module that comes with it. We might want to use something else, right? So you kind of break into pieces that might be replaceable and then use Kubernetes uh, and virtualization to scale it up. And so what you want to do is just basically overwhelm, you know, your problem with hardware and scaling. And, and so there's only so, so much tuning you can do where the only way to get past this problem is just to scale your way out of it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, is it, you mentioned SSDs, so I imagine at least at some level, this is kind of disk or IO bound. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of, right. Kubernetes is interesting. I, I guess that makes a lot of sense because yeah, you can, you basically scale, you know, create auto scaling policies for some module. And if, you know, if it can get through with what it, it has, great. If not, it, it, it bumps up. Um, you mentioned though, that it's been kind of, and, and again, you know, you tell me how, how much of this you're comfortable going into or can't go into, but what, what would be some of the challenges of making this technology or this processing more horizontally scalable than it is today? Do you seem to allude that like, ah, you know, 
it's not as easy as it might look. And it isn't right. I mean, and that's, I don't think that's unique to um, the insurance business. I mean, you know, building applications and architectures that can take advantage of horizontal scale is not necessarily for the faint of heart. I'm just curious what, what, if anything, you were thinking about there. To me, there's two main, I would say, choke points. Uh, one is the whole thing is soft coded, right? So how big is the container that you need to process? Maybe the rules are in XML. Who, who knows what they'd selected for doing that kind of work? Maybe they you know, compile the logic into a kind of a byte code and use that, which is more efficient. Um, but so you have that, you know, what's your processing engine, right? So how big a footprint is and how many threads and how much concurrency you can do there, which includes caching and data and all the things you would think of with a soft coded system. But then the other end is the database. And uh, for the database, um, from, for, from my experience, the main problem was up until oh, like eight years ago or so, was that we used as uh, not just in life insurance, but I think everywhere, sequential IDs, right? And so <laughs> the problem with sequential IDs is yes. that- Yes, yes, I like this. If you're on the end of the tail and you have your 1 millionth policy or whatever, chances are the highest level of activity is going to be the last 100,000 policies, right? Because that's the stuff where there's a lot more change. And then making things worse, every transaction, head of record, detail record, accounting records, with all these sequential IDs, you're basically, even they have a large database, you're focusing on as much as possible in a hot spot as you can. And so GUIDs were an insane game changer for me. So um, in a previous life, I was tuning a... Uh, uh, in, in uh, re-architecting and scaling a platform and they were using GUIDs. And um, at one point I noticed that as the database got bigger, things process faster. And I'm like, that's not possible. Like my entire life has been more data equals more challenges. I got more data, I went faster. And then I realized that, well, because everything was GUID based, that the distribution on the disk was disseminated and um, it, the contention was going down. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you mentioned it because it actually really is. It's one of the, I think it's one of the biggest hurdles that like uh, people who are using distributed technologies or distributed databases more specifically face right out of the gate. Because so many applications, you're right, are, you know, these, you know, increasing integers or longs, right? You know, just, you know, one, two, three, all the way up, right? And, and you're absolutely right. And what's so fascinating about that specifically with uh, the insurance businesses, you're right. It's that tail end, right? It's the, it's those high numbers. It's the last in that's probably the most active. And yeah, you can get terrible hotspotting. You've got this huge cluster of distributed compute and storage power, but all of your energy is focused on a handful of nodes because that's where, you know, those keys are landing. Yep. And so I know with Cockroach, and, and this is true, I think, of, of, of most distributed systems and certainly distributed databases, is, is distributing those keys in an effective manner so that every node can be tackling this problem, not just, you know, a small handful is a huge issue. We spent countless, you know, hours, years, in fact, kind of improving not just how we distribute data, but observability in that so that, you know, you as an operator or developer can look and see, oh, geez, you know, I'm overwhelming a node or an R parlance, a range, um, you know, it, it's super important. So I, I'm really glad you mentioned it. And I, I'm glad others are, you know, kind of feeling this pain because it is um, in, in, in GUIDs are certainly one way to, to get out of that box. Um, there are other things you can do, of course, but, 
um, yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, GUI is only half the story. Back to your horizontal scaling with, say, Cockroach, is you need to change the software to look at how you process and create a common key that enables the distribution of the unit of work. And so in life insurance, it's a policy. And so you'd want to have the policy number on the transaction header records and transaction detail records, and even down to uh, potentially your um, other records like um, uh, accounting records, uh, simply so that when you send that unit work to process this policy, that node is responsible for all the IO and, re- and eliminates the cross chatter that you would have. So uh, back to good architecture at the whole point of this podcast is really <laughs> you, right. you try to take a look at what the tools are available for you today. Um, because I would answer differently 10 years ago and then differently again, 10 years before that. Um, but you're looking at what's available today and saying, okay, what is something that is maintainable? That is, it can't be too complicated, cost effective. I can't be paying high li- uh, license costs and is, I won't say the word elegant, but you know, it gets to the point of what is the solution. And so I think with like scaling databases, like with Cockroach Labs, it's, it's not just having their architecture in place, but modifying your software to take advantage of that. What, you know, this is a conversation we often get into with, with folks, and I'm curious what your perspective on this. So, you know, if you could design the perfect system, right, that, that did all the processing in an hour or 50 minutes, I mean, what, what does that mean to a a company like New York Life or to, to anybody in this business? Is that, does that save you money? Does that increase customer? Like, what is the, what's the, the benefit to solving this problem? Because I, I, I think, you know, over time, as, as you rightly said, everybody's going to get better at this, right? You know, I mean, there, this, this is a process that will happen more and more quickly as technology improves. But what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean to the, to the business, if anything? Well, let's talk about cost because cost, again, cloud was a game changer. Um, so let's just say you had a server and it takes 10 hours to process. Or I have 10 servers, I process one hour. What's the cost difference? There's none. You're paying for 10 hours of compute. Yeah. So if you horizontally scale, your costs are net neutral. Now, there might be some lie to that, like 10%, but but it's in the ballpark net neutral. Um, now, the benefit of doing one hour versus, say, three hours is things do fail. And we talked about the banking needs at midnight. Like, their time doesn't change. It's like, ah, oh, we have problems. Can you process your our buy sales for next morning starting at 3 a.m.? <laughs> you missed a window. It's on you, right? So so if you could do it in one hour instead of three hours and you have an issue, now you have two hours to recover. Um, so the 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 horizontal scaling is for batch. I mean, users are a little bit different, but for batch, the benefit is that the cost should be ideally net neutral and you gain, um, I would say, a higher, a more time to recover from problems. Interesting. And I do wonder, I mean, I do wonder if it in fact is net neutral. I mean, and just anecdotally, you know, some of the things that we've seen, and again, this may not at all apply to this industry, but, you know, you, it's, these horizontally scalable systems, right? I mean, they become almost prohibitively expensive, um, you know, by, you know, you just kind of max out on disk or you max out on, on CPU, you know, there just isn't more you can put in that single box kind of thing. You know, and, and what we've seen with Cockroach, at least in, in many instances, is, you know, you can fan out much, much cheaper individual instances. Well, that's horizontally, not vertical. So vertical is too big. 
So this is horizontal. So you want basically like a small, small computational, like say four cores or whatever, and then scale out like a hundred servers if you had to. Exactly. So instead of one giant one, yes, small, much of small, cheaper ones to kind and of that get was the, the same cloud, outcome. right? You could horizontally scale to meet your demands uh, versus the vertical. Back in the day, you know, you had to do vertical database. Like you, I could horizontally scale the compute for a long time with VMware and other things, but my database was a monolith, right? And that was only vertical. So if I wanted to go faster, I had to stop everything, restart the thing, just to get 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 faster. And how often, I mean, you know, and again, are, are these things, these jobs failing pretty re- regularly? I mean, is it, or is that just more of like an ins- an insurance policy on the processing of insurance policies that if we need it, we can? It's not frequent, typically historically, but we are moving to a SaaS model. And as you know, change is coming quicker and quicker and quicker. So um, the balancing act is, is if you just happen to have a bad night in the market, dislocates the next morning right then i guess it's on you to pay that that difference so like if you just have bad timing right (laughs) nobody's going to say oh well you know things happen like people are going to be furious right i mean they want perfection so um so even if it's not frequent you know you you just want to not take on that risk and i'm curious too because you mentioned it you know we've been talking mostly on the batch side right but there is a there is a, a client a customer angle to to all of this. And I would imagine the use, I mean, this is true for me personally, right? You know, instead of calling up my agent every time I had a question or wanted to check on something and, you know, like talking to his admin and talking to him, I'm doing it all on my app now. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so. And, and so there's like, there has to be a whole experience and, and set of architectural concerns on that side as well, doesn't there? Yeah. So the biggest change for me when I moved from the vendor side to working in New York Life is that I had one product that did a set of things. Now you're getting into, you need 100 different products <laughs> to do all the things. And so the policy admin we've been focused on uh, won't typically be that touch point for the customer. It's the, it's the back-end work. And then you do have to um, have your own um, you know application or a web app uh, where they can do that kind of uh, kind of work, and and I think that where companies invest, at least in insurance, is basically a reflection of you know maybe their customer base or where they're trying to grow into. Um, what are is important um, to your customer? Agents need the best tools possible to help you know service their customers. So you know, not that we don't have a, a an app or web app presence, we do, but. But the focus is more of empowering the agent to be your partner in investing and 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 coverage and and what's going on in your life. Maybe maybe you don't realize you could take a loan against your policy, and then that person you know hears from you and says you need. Oh, by the way, do you know you take a loan on your policy? Oh, I didn't know that. So having those agents uh, work with you, and then um, that's where we focus on. But but there is a whole. But there's correspondence. There's self service. There, there there are competitors out there who do direct the market. And they really don't have agents, right? Um, so those competitors really are focusing on maybe the customer experience to the highest degree, but then they're relying upon you as a customer choosing them because they don't have anybody who's, who's advising you. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, again, just cause we focus so much on resilience and all those stories. I mean, if, you know, if I'm a, if I'm an agent sitting down at the, you know, across the desk from a prospect and I go to log into the system to, to create or sell a policy and, and I can't get to, <laughs> I can't get to my systems to do that. You know, there's, there's challenges there, yeah. you know, 
Well, this is, um, yeah, this is interesting. You know, it's so funny how complex systems are, you know, under the surface. I, I think that's one of the most interesting things about not only being in this industry, but, but, but doing this podcast is you get to learn about so many interesting things. I mean, what, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of what has been and what is, I mean, what, and again, I ask the questions, you don't have to answer them, um, or you may not know, but you know, what's, what's on the horizon? You know, I mean, there, a, a day doesn't go by that I don't hear about chat GPT and large language models. And, you know, I, there's all that. I mean, I'm just curious, like, you know, from your seat, what are some of those things that are, that are potentially on the horizon that will be another kind of big paradigm shift in how the insurance technology business works? Yeah, so there's, there's two different lenses. One is insurance as a whole. And I'm going to pull it back a little bit to the policy admin, just because that's where my specialty is, is that now we do have legacy systems everywhere. And part of the problem we have with the migration we talked about is understanding what you have. You know, it's like, how do you re-implement the processing rules in a manner that's compatible to what you have today? If you have assembly, you have to, you know, spend quite a bit of hours to reverse engineer and figure out what you're doing today, right? So I'm hoping with AI... They're going to come up with something that says, look, we can read your old code and we'll convert it into something more elegant in a new language or or just some rules in a rules engine or, or something like that. And the rate of change can be accelerated dramatically in this industry because we can move off of old to new simply by using an AI that gets you 95% there and 5% error rate. And you can figure that out and you can actually move forward quicker. That also leads into even just product development, big data, you know, looking at your data that you have. I mean, these insurance carriers have millions of, you know, customers. And is there a way we can kind of gleam information out of, say, you know, social media or some other information out there to help us be more effective at what we do? Um, so I, I do think there's a lot of different angles that way. Uh, but from a company as a whole for AI, I mean, right now, looking at things like claims or fraud, you can use AI to detect uh, that. But as an architect in New York Life, I look at all this as like, what is less about the architecture? What is the capabilities that you can buy as a SaaS that is driven with that good architecture to service you to be able to advance forward while we focus on our core, which is serving the insurance customer? Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. One thing I, you touched on, which I'm curious about is, you know, assembly, for example. I mean, is has this been a challenge? I feel like I've talked to others not necessarily in the podcast, but just out in, in regular work where, you know, finding talent to, to read and maintain some of these legacy systems is a challenge. Is that, is that something that, that is, is true in the insurance industry? I mean, given some of the. It's not limited to insurance. I mean, assembly, you know, uh, the, the, the challenge of assembly to me is multifold. One is uh, just, you know, getting talent who wants to really dedicate themselves to assembly, right? Like, you know, <laughs> that, that is, you know, on the, well, younger age, right? Uh, but but the other is is really there's a lot of complexity. Think about it. If you have assembly that's been you know created over forty years, how long will it take for you to actually get good understanding of that ecosystem? Five years, ten years? Like it's not going to take six months, right? And so it's not even just getting people, but getting people up to speed. And so realistically, if you look at no code, low code, why are we doing that? Because we don't even want to have any code, much less assembly. Right. And so really it, it, it's we're 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 trying to uh, I'm going to take a step back, really a step back here. Like if you look at technology as a whole, what have we done? 
we've taken complicated work and made it super simple. So if you look at, say, back in the 70s, you call up your phone company. Hey, I have a problem with my bill. Think what that person did. Hey, Tim, can I have your phone number? Okay, can you hold on one minute? Person runs down to the filing cabinet room, pulls out the file, runs back and says, oh, I have all your bills. Which day? Oh, this day. Now, let me go to that. Let me get my calculator out. Where do you think there is? Start calculating it out. Once you get an agreement with the customer, what the, the, the problem is, then you write out a memo. You put it in your desk so somebody can run around, pick that up, run it down to somebody. Like, think about all the mental work that that person who answered your phone call and, and coordination with others had to do. Now, what do you do? You call up and say, yeah, I see it. Credit. Five cents done. Like, so what we've done outside of IT, we're now trying to do inside of IT. So I look at low-code, no-code as saying the same exact thing. Do I need to have all these com complicated resources to achieve my business goal? Or can I back out of that and make it low-code, no-code? So back to your assembly thing, it's just diametrically op opposite of where we're going, right? We're trying to make it so that if you're the knowledge person, you know how to create a life insurance product, you should have hands-on keyboard, an easy way to do that and not have to go through 13 layers and have the assembly made. Does that make sense? No, it, it, it makes perfect sense. And I, I think you're too, I was just going to say earlier that like, I mean, you know, there's, I, I'm a Java developer and, and write a lot of code. I mean, there's code I've written six months ago that I don't understand and I wrote <laughs> it. So yeah, you know, um, reading someone's assembly code that's been built up over 40 years is a, is a painful task. And it's actually, it's not it's something I had thought of, but I mean, there'll be lots of things I haven't thought of as it, when it comes to AI, but I think it's a, a terribly fascinating idea uh, because, you know, again, and it's not just insurance related. I mean, there are so many industries and companies that are, you know, having to wrangle with or deal with this very, very legacy technology. And they just, there just aren't people around <clears throat> that can or want to do the work to convert it. And if you could, if you could train AI to, like you said, just get it 95% of the way there, you know, think about what that could do and open up for, for some of these businesses that require, or, you know, have relied on very, very older legacy technology for so long. It'd be amazing, huge game changer. And it doesn't have to be assembly, all older languages. Uh, it could be even a modern language that you want to soft code into a rules engine. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, it's very, very fascinating. Um, well, I, I, as we're wrapping up, any any final thoughts, things that we didn't cover that uh, that we should have? Any last words of wisdom that you wanted to share? As architects or people designing things, it isn't necessarily just about providing a good solution. It's also about a company backing up with a great cadence. So um, you can have the most elegant solution that just doesn't work because you don't have that unbelievable discipline to every step of the way automate and implement in best of breed manner. And so I think there's a culmination of good architecture and uh, excellent you know, operational practices that have to come together to make a great company. And, and so it just, you know, it, Creating, creating the one without the other just doesn't work. You need to have both. Well, Mike, I think we'll leave it there. I think that's a, a great way to close the podcast. Again, thank you so much for joining us here on Big Ideas in App Architecture. It was 
a fascinating conversation, learn about an industry I knew very, very little about. Uh, so thank you again. I'm glad to hear life insurance is that interesting to you. <laughs> it is. Thank you.